Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Well, again, welcome. Uh, I'm Dr. Alan Schreck, uh, teach theology here at Franciscan University of Steubenville. And um, my talk tonight is based on a book that I uh, recently published. It was, came out at the end of July, uh, St. Fran Francis and Pope Francis, Prayer, Poverty, and Joy in Jesus. And uh, I thought it would be appropriate as we approach the great feast of St. Francis on Saturday to offer this talk and some, to give you sort of an overview of some of the thoughts that are in this book. Um, first of all, I'd like to uh, thank, in the, in the dedication of my book, I dedicated to, to the book, I'll read the dedication, to all faithful followers of St. Francis, especially my friends and colleagues, past and present at Franciscan University, the friars of the Third Order Regular of St. Francis of Penance, the Franciscan Sisters, TOR of Penance of the Sorrowful Mother, and also Father Conrad Harkins, OFM, who is a member of our department, taught theology and is a Franciscan scholar. So I, I, wanna, I want to mention my debt of gratitude for the, to them for their contribution to this book because I've taught here for 37 years and I've been rubbing shoulders with these, uh, our, our friars and, and the few our sisters once they were founded for many years. So my love of St. Francis, my interest in him is largely coming from them and they're a great example and witness of Franciscan life. So thanks to them. Um, okay, so in preparing this talk, I found myself wanting to tell the story of St. Francis's life and all the, the striking parallels to the life and story of Pope Francis. But I quickly realized I could not do this in 45 minutes or an hour to tell everything I wanted to. So I, I'm just going to share some of the things that I discovered and have really struck me and in researching and writing this book. And in the book, I do, uh, have many stories and quotes from St. Francis and Pope Francis that inspired and instructed me and led me to appreciate both of them more fully. So if you are fascinated or curious about them as a result of this talk, I would recommend my book. And if anyone likes, uh, during the question period, I could also recommend other primary source material or other biographies of St. Francis that are very good and are, were helpful to me. Uh, so now, in considering St. Francis and Pope Francis, initially, two things really stand out to me about them. The first is their sense of closeness to God, the immediacy of God. Hansurs von Balthasar wrote this about St. Francis. He wrote, everything depends on the awareness we have of our Christianity. For Francis, to be a Christian was something just as immense, certain, and as startlingly glorious as to be a human being, a youth, a man. And because being a Christian is eternal being and eternal youth without danger of withering or resignation, his immediate joy was deeper. Now this line struck me. Not one single year separated him, Francis, from Christ, the one who had become flesh, from the manger, from the cross. For him, not one speck of dust had settled on the freshness of the wonder in the passage of time. Even though Francis lived 1,300 years or so, 1,200, 1,300 years after Christ, his discovery of Jesus was his freshness, this immediacy, 
And even now, as we are 800 years after his life, his writings, his teaching come across with the same freshness and immediacy. Pope Francis also speaks about God always going ahead of us to meet us. Wherever we are, wherever we are going, God is there waiting to meet us. So that's the first thing that is general about them, the immediacy, the closeness of God. The second thing that stood out to me about both Pope Francis and St. Francis is that they hear Jesus speaking to them and to us in the Gospels in a very direct and personal way. And their response is to want to immediately put that into practice, what they hear Jesus saying. They respond directly and literally to the words of Jesus in the Gospel, and they invite us, mainly by their example, to do the same. Following Jesus' teaching on detachment from material things, uh, Gospel poverty is an obvious example of something both Pope Francis and St. Francis consider a central Gospel teaching that they seek to live out or sought to live out in a practical, literal way. And there, there are many other things about Pope Francis in his teaching that he really stresses of the, from the gospel. For example, the need to not to judge others and to avoid hypocrisy and to uh, be you know, just transparent before God. But a common theme that they both have is this concern, uh, this invitation of Christ, this challenge of Christ to live what he taught and we'll talk particularly later about gospel poverty. Now, let's talk more about that. St. Francis was not always a lover of poverty. As you know, probably, he and his father were prosperous cloth merchants, and in his teenage and young adult years, Francis loved to host dinners and throw parties for his friends. He was called, they called him the king of youth. He had a natural generosity, even a magnanimity. A magnanimity is a great heartedness, an idealism, that really never left him and was perhaps the seed or even a clue to his future vocation. But that call to be a radical follower of Christ did not come easily or suddenly to Francesco Bernardone. It was a long and often painful journey for young Francis, which actually might resonate with your own experience. A lot of people think about saints as, oh, they knew all along and it was easy for them to follow Jesus. Not so for young Francis. The first chapter of my book recounts the process of Francis's conversion. He aspired, first of all, like many young people of his time, young men, to be a knight and win fame on the battlefield. Even after he was captured and imprisoned in his, uh, after his first military campaign, he cheerfully boasted in prison how he would be great and famous someday. But then when he returned to Assisi, he was probably ransomed, he fell ill and something in him began to change, which his friends noticed. Actually, Francis began to struggle, perhaps, with the meaning and the direction of his life. Nonetheless, he left to go on another military campaign, but on the way to this, something happened which caused him to abandon his mission, sell his horse and armor, and return to Assisi on foot. It was obvious that something deep was going on in Francis. He began, he went back to work, but he began to give away food and even money uh, to the poor until his father grew so angry about this that he had Francis locked up in a room until he came to his senses. The sources of Francis's life that I cite in my book tell the story in more detail, but the upshot is that Francis eventually decided to leave home and become a penitent in Assisi, dressed in ragged clothes and begging food. Now, such penitents were not uncommon in his day. 
there were many people who felt a need to atone for their sins <clears throat> and uh, to, and Francis was apparently felt led by God to make a radical break from his comfortable life and to repent of his sins and to seek the Lord's will for him. Two things happened to him, particularly events that really pointed the way. And you're probably familiar with these if you know about Francis. First of all, his perception of Jesus speaking to him from the cross as he prayed in the dilapidated chapel of San Damiano. And he had a sense that Jesus was telling him to repair or to rebuild his church. And Francis, in his very typical style, took this literally and afterwards began to repair run San Damiano and other rundown or abandoned churches in the region. He, again, he wanted to take the word of God as he heard it very literally. The second life-changing event occurred when one day Francis encountered a leper on the road. Now, Francis was somewhat of a young dandy. He would not even come within blocks or a mile of lepers if he saw them. But this day, instead of heading the other way in disgust, as he usually did, he approached the leper, gave him alms, and embraced him. And this was, in a sense, many authors say this was a real climax of his conversion. As he wrote in his testaments shortly before his death, he said, God had made sweet for him what had before been bitter. All of a sudden, what had repulsed him now had a sweetness in approaching this leper. Francis found the freedom he had been seeking. And in becoming sort of himself a social outcast like the leper, and in approaching uh, the poor and administering to them with love, the love that Jesus had given him, Francis began to find the peace and, and meaning in his life that he was seeking. It was clear that God had done and was doing this work in the life of St. Francis. Now, about Pope Francis, uh, France, Pope Francis, perhaps his, his conversion story is not as dramatic, but he does recount how he discovered his own vocation. At age 17, on a school holiday, young Jorge Bergoglio was in an unfamiliar part of town, but sensed the need to go into a church for confession. And in the church he entered, there was a priest who, who seemed to be waiting for him, expecting him. And during the confession, young Jorge, Jorge first sensed that God was inviting him to be a priest. In reflecting on this important moment of his life, Pope Francis has said that he learned from this that God is always going ahead of us, just waiting for us to come to him. Just as that priest, he just seemed to be waiting for Jorge to come in for confession. Just as God was waiting for the, to call the young Francis of Assisi when he was praying at San Damiano and through the leper that he encountered on the road. So that's the conversion, the start for the story, at least of Francis. In a couple of chapters in my book, I talk about the call of the saint and the pope to community and to their special relationship with the church. When Francis began to live as a penitent in Assisi, he had no intention of starting a religious group or order, nor even to ask anyone to join him in begging food and repairing churches. But one by one, other, others, especially other men, asked to join Francis. What attracted them, perhaps, was he was simple, he was sincere, and most of all, he was a man of prayer. In fact, the first one to join Francis, named Bernard, 
decided to do so after he saw Francis and get up, get up to pray most of the night after, after Francis thought Bernard had fallen asleep. He was sort of a guest in his home and Francis was spending the night in prayer and Bernard was watching him. Francis later, and so one by one, Francis began to attract followers and Francis later said simply, God gave me brothers. Francis grew to be a firm but compassionate spiritual father. He had no particular training, but God gave him the, the wisdom and knowledge to become a spiritual father. When Francis saw the need for, to develop some sort of a rule to guide their lives, he, he and a, a couple of them went to a priest and asked him what they should do, and they opened the missal three times, and they just came upon three passages of, in the Gospels in which Jesus basically says, sell everything, make no provision for tomorrow, and come follow him. That was the basis of Francis's first rule, even before it was really formulated, but which even when expanded was pretty much just a collection of scripture passages. The Gospel was Francis's rule. But even though, um, even though during this time, Everything Francis did was confirmed by his own bishop, Guido, and I've, I haven't told you about you know, how he come, came under his bishop's protection in the dramatic scene with his father that you've probably heard about, but the point was, why did Francis think he needed more confirmation for what he was doing? The bishop, it was okay for the bishop, with the bishop, but Francis wanted this way of life to be confirmed by the pope himself. So he and his little group of followers went to Rome, where eventually Pope Innocent III verbally approved Francis's little band and probably had him ordained the deacon, though Francis never really made too much of this. Francis just wanted to be a little poor man obedient to the church. Now in time, in the time that Francis was living, this obedience to the church was by no means a given because there were all sorts of little groups springing up wanting to live poorly and to preach, but many of them were anti-clerical, critical of the worldly, uh, the worldly clergy and the worldly church, and some of them were even heretical, claiming that the world and everything material was evil. And I'll mention this a little more later. But Francis was far different. He refused to be critical of any priest or bishop, not because he was blind to their faults, but because, in true humility, he respected them for their office. He realized that it was only through them that the Eucharist was given and the absolution from sins. Francis, therefore, was a loyal son of the Catholic Church, and he insisted that his followers be faithful, obedient Catholics. And of course, naturally, the same can be said of Pope Francis throughout his life, a man who belonged to a religious community, the Society of Jesus, whose historical hallmark is defense of the Catholic faith and loyalty to the Church, especially to the Holy Father, the Pope. Another chapter of my book is devoted to mission. In an age in which the primary relation of the church to the Muslims, for example, was to launch crusades against them, St. Francis had a burning personal passion to evangelize them, to proclaim to them the good news of Jesus. I say this was a personal passion because Francis did not conceive of his followers being or becoming primarily a missionary society. They were not like Dominic Guzman's order of preachers who were founded about the same time and who were founded to preach and to convert. The only preaching Francis envisioned, he composed a short exhortation to repentance that he gave his brothers to recite if they were called upon to preach. 
but that was about it, except of course, until at least Saint An and one Anthony of Padua joined the order, and he was such an anointed preacher that he became sort of the preacher of the order. But just as Francis felt called to get his little band of followers approved personally by the Pope, that was his own idea, Francis just sensed God calling him to go and to preach to one of the principal Muslim leaders, the Sultan Malik al-Kamil. St. Francis had this virtue that Pope Francis often speaks of as parhesia, holy boldness. Uh, now Francis, so Francis set out to convert the Sultan. He hoped that as a result of his mission, he would either convert the Sultan or be martyred. He, he didn't really care which one. <laughs> as it turned out in the Lord's plan, neither happened. The Sultan wasn't converted, but he was so impressed by Francis's passion and evident humility that he sent him away, especially when he saw he was not a political threat. When Francis later heard that some of his followers had been martyred by proclaiming the faith, he rejoiced that the Lord had blessed the order this way. He said, boy, God has given us martyrs. And he felt like now we're really in order that now that we have martyrs. Francis was convinced, though, that the gospel of peace must be presented in peace, a message that Pope Francis and most of the popes of modern times have affirmed. Of course, Pope Francis's apostolic exhortation on the joy of the gospel sends this message clearly as well. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. So both of these, St. Francis and Pope Francis, certainly have a sense of mission. But now I'd like to move to what I consider really the heart of my book. In fact, uh, uh, my editor said this should be the subtitle, Prayer, Poverty, and Joy in Jesus. And the book has a chapter on each of these. So let's, let's look at these. These are really at the heart of certainly St. Francis and also in many ways Pope Francis. Regarding prayer, you know, the prayer of St. Francis, I think it is remarkable how many prayers of St. Francis we have preserved and yet how few people really know these prayers or really pay much attention to them in writing about St. Francis. There are a lot, not a lot of scholarly studies about Francis's prayer, but we have, we have dozens of prayers. It's interesting, one of the things that's interesting to me, that many of his, his most effusive and beautiful prayers are actually written as part of his rules. You know, most people think about religious rules as a set of laws. Well, Francis would be writing a rule and then he just burst into prayer in the middle of the rule. In fact, I'll read you. This is, for example, he ends his earlier rule with an extended prayer that ended with an invocation of the saints. And then he, after that, he gives this exhortation in his earliest rule. He says, let all, everywhere, in every place, at every hour, and at all times, daily and continually, believe, truly and humbly, and let us hold in our hearts and love, honor, adore, serve, praise and bless, glorify and exalt, magnify and give thanks to the most high and supreme eternal God, in Trinity and unity, to the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, to the creator of all, to the savior of all, to the savior of all who believe and hope in him and love him, who without beginning or end is immutable, invisible, unerring, ineffable, incomprehensible, unfathomable, blessed, praiseworthy, glorious, exalted, sublime, most high, sweet, amiable, lovable, and always wholly desirable above all forever and ever, amen. Wow. <laughs> Francis, is, this is probably why we don't pray there. They're just so spontaneous, in some ways so personal. Now Francis also wrote liturgical prayers. His, his office of the passion is just very moving. And he had the friars who could read, pray the liturgy of the hours, and 
he even composed certain uh, parts of certain prayers for the order uh, connected with the liturgy of the hours. So um, St. Francis was deeply a man of prayer. In St. Bonaventure's uh, Life of Francis, the Legenda Mayor, he has a chapter, a whole chapter on Francis's prayer, and he points out some attributes of it. Fervor, intimacy, humility, responsiveness to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, reverence, as well as pointing out some of his particular devotions. He has the beautiful prayers, the salutation to the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the salutation to the virtues, and these beautiful prayers. So time doesn't permit me to cite all of these, but here's what Bonaventure says about his fervor in prayer. He's, uh, Bonaventure writes, he would fill the groves with sighs, sprinkle the ground with tears, strike his breast with his fist, groan aloud, imploring the divine mercy for sinners, and weeping for the Lord's passion. So uh, that's just a little taste of Francis, his prayer. Now, Pope Francis also speaks of prayer as the source and center of Christian life. Um, it was reported uh, in one of the early, I think in the Man of the Year, Person of the Year article in Time Magazine, they have a little quote that said, Francis gets up at 5 a.m., prays from 5 to 7 a.m. every day before celebrating his morning mass at 7. And then after a day's work, he spends an hour before the Blessed Sacrament, before dinner, where he admits he sometimes dozes off in the Lord's presence. Uh, he always says it's always good to sleep in the Lord's presence. Pope Francis humbly um, requested at his first introduction as Pope that people pray for him. And he, he often asked different groups to pray with him and even over him on a number of occasions. So St. Pope Francis, again, gives us the model of prayer. So that's first at the heart of Pope Francis and St. Francis in particular, the, the prayer, prayer being the source of power and life in their Christian life. The second notable attribute of St. Francis that everyone rightly associates with him and also with Pope Francis is poverty. Now, perhaps Francis's poverty was somewhat of a reaction to his spendthrift habits as a youth. Um, after his conversion, Francis simply did not want to have, to any, have anything to do with money. But the deepest motivation for his poverty was to imitate the poor Christ, who had nowhere to lay his head, and who instructed his followers to trust in the Lord to provide, like the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Yes, Francis instructed his followers to work to provide for their needs, but not to accumulate, accumulate wealth. In fact, even not, to, not even to touch money. You know, just they wanted, he wanted them to work for, for bread or, or for food or for bricks for their, to build a house or something. He also considered begging alms for the sake of Christ as a privilege for those who had left everything to devote themselves to prayer and the Lord's service. Francis, uh, in, in fact, this idea of the Lord's service in prayer, uh, he and his followers often would go, just go apart to uh, isolated places and find caves where they would just spend uh, long times in prayer. France, and, and in poverty, Francis always had maintained just a little bit about one aspect of Francis in poverty. Francis had always, always had and maintained sort of a spirit of noble, a nobility of spirit, a type of chivalry which was characteristic of his age. He often identified himself as the herald of the great king, the Lord's troubadour. He loved to praise God in French, which he thought was a particularly good language for a troubadour. But of course, every nobleman has his lady, and Francis's lady was, you know it, Lady Poverty, a noble woman to whom he was betrothed in Christ. 
For St. Francis, poverty was not a burden, but a joy, a chosen vocation, a gift that resulted in spiritual freedom. But the deepest motivation for poverty for St. Francis was that Jesus himself was materially, materially poor, and Francis really wanted to imitate Jesus in everything. Um, I have a little quote from my book. This poverty was not a deprivation for Francis, but a positive thing, an act of trust in God, in which the one who lived poverty would experience the Lord's faithful care and provision. Yes, it was also at times an opportunity to share in the sufferings of the poor Christ. But that for Francis was another positive thing. He saw the opportunity to imitate Christ in his humility and poverty and in suffering as something noble. It is a privilege to share in the Lord's own chosen way of life. St. Francis particularly loved those things that reminded him of Jesus' lowliness, his birth in a stable, his simple life, his abandonment and suffering as he approached his passion and death. Francis was, St. Francis was given to see the Lord's presence in the face of the poor and the marginalized, even in those who had been most repulsive to him before, the lepers. The observance of gospel poverty sent, set Francis free to be at home with the weak, the poor, the sick, and so this was the lifestyle that he and his followers gratefully and joyfully embraced. Most of all, Francis was poor because he loved Jesus and wanted to imitate him in everything. So, what about Pope Francis? Well, Pope Francis recounts that he actually chose the name Francis of Assisi because of Francis of Assisi's love of poverty. Um, he, he told the story of, you know, everyone was asking him after his election, why did you choose the name? Do you mean Francis de Sales or maybe the Jesuit, Francis Xavier? And he said, no, Francis of Assisi. And he explained that when the ballots were being counted and it appeared that he was gonna be elected, a friend of his, a Cardinal Homus, leaned over and whispered, you know, Francis, uh, uh, Jorge, don't forget the poor. And he says, the Pope says at that moment, he suddenly the name of Francis came to mind, Francis of Assisi, because he realized Francis was the saint of the poor. Pope Francis, since his election, of course, frequently speaks of the call to poverty. Three days after his election, he said, oh, how I wish for a church that is poor and for the poor. His exhortations on gospel poverty may be summarized in three points, which I expand in my book. First, try to be poor or become poorer, poorer yourselves. This will not only enable you to meet the needs of others more fully, but is also a gospel witness. Secondly, we should have personal contact with the poor when we assist them whenever possible, as St. Francis did when he gave alms or assisted others. And thirdly, Pope Francis exhorts leaders of nations to pursue just economic policies that favor the poor and the marginalized. We too can also speak out in favor of such policies. So that's the attribute of poverty, very much at the heart of Francis and both Pope and St. Francis. The third attribute of both the Pope and the saint that really stands out is joy. The uh, second last penultimate chapter of my book is entitled Joy, the Hallmark of a Christian. St. Francis exhibited joy, especially in his life that focused so much and so deeply on the praise of God. You know, his prayers reflect that overflowing joy. Um, at one point, Francis corrected a brother who showed up in the community with a gloomy face. He told him to go to the Lord, repent of his sin, and return when he had found peace again. Don't weigh your brothers down by gloom. The most famous story about, of St. Francis about joy was in his little flowers, the Fioretti. 
And the story was he asked Brother Leo, Brother Leo, tell me what is perfect joy? And Brother Leo says, I don't know, Francis, tell me what is perfect joy? <laughs> anyway, so Francis ended up, uh, the point of the story was Francis ended up instructing him that perfect joy would be uh, if Francis or the, any brother would end up, uh, would, would appear at the door of his, their, his brothers and they didn't recognize him, they, um, they insulted them, beat him with the clubs uh, and threw him out in the cold and snow and left him there. And he says, you know, he concludes, if we endure all those evils and insults and blows with joy and patience, reflecting that we must accept and bear the sufferings of the blessed Christ patiently for love of him. Oh, Brother Leo, right, that is perfect joy. Now, Pope Francis has spoken frequently, even years before his election as Pope, of joy being the, the mark of a true Christian. Uh, he said that Jesus himself was a man of joy because of his intimacy with the Father. Just to share a few quotes uh, from Pope Francis on joy. First of all, Jesus' joy. He said, Jesus' inner joy comes precisely from his relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And this is the joy that he gives to us. And this joy is true peace. It is not a static, quiet, tranquil peace. Christian peace is a joyful peace. For Jesus is joyful. God is joyful. In a homily uh, last year on the Feast of the Visitation, he, he says, uh, Pope Francis, we Christians are not very used to talking about joy, about happiness. I think we often prefer complaints. What is joy? The key to understanding this joy is in the words of the gospel of that day for visitation. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes on, it is the Spirit himself who guides us. He is the author of joy, the creator of joy. And this joy that is in the Holy Spirit gives us true Christian freedom. Without joy, we Christians cannot become free. We are enslaved to our sorrows. He said, the great Pope Paul VI said, it is impossible to carry the gospel any further with sad, dejected, disheartened Christians. It is impossible. So uh, later he, he gives at the end of this homily a model for joy. He said, it is she, the Virgin Mary, who brings joy. We must pray to Our Lady that in bringing Jesus, she gives us the grace of joy, of freedom, the grace of praise, that she give us the grace of praising freely, for he is worthy of praise forever. Little echoes of St. Francis there in our Pope. In his call to joy, Pope Francis appears like St. Francis, a troubadour of the Lord. He is acutely aware that all the talk and teaching regarding the new evangelization will be in vain unless Christians are joyful about their faith and go about living and proclaiming it joyfully. Uh, some, one uh, excerpt from a homily of Pope Francis, joy is a gift from God. It fills us from within. It is like an anointing of the Spirit. And this joy is the certainty that Jesus is with us and with the Father. Sometimes these melancholy Christian faces have more in common with pickled peppers than the joy of having a beautiful life. You know, there's a lot of humor in Pope Francis. Uh, joy, he said in another place, joy cannot be held at heel. It must be let go. It is a pilgrim virtue. Um, then in another homily, he said, I would like us now to ask ourselves, how do we live our life in the church? Are we living stones, or are we, as it were, stones that are weary, bored, or indifferent? Have you ever noticed how grim it is to see a tired, bored, and indifferent Christian? A Christian like that is all wrong. A Christian must be alive, rejoicing in being a Christian, or he and she, or rejoicing in being a Christian. He or she must live this beauty of belonging to the people of God, which is the church. 
Do we open ourselves to the action of the Holy Spirit to be an active part of our communities? Or do we withdraw within ourselves saying, I have so much to do, it isn't my job. Of course, the question, where is joy to be found? Well, <clears throat> all of our last four point, popes, uh, from Pope Paul VI to Pope Francis, have said that one key to finding joy is in evangelizing. Uh, the joy of the gospel, the Pope's, uh, Pope Francis's uh, um, exhortation on the joy of the gospel, explores the meaning of gospel joy in our time. The first sentence of that apostolic exhortation is, the joy of the gospel fills the hearts and lives of all who encounter Jesus. And then he says a, a little, he said that the biggest obstacle to joy in our world today, he says the great danger to the, to, in, to, to, in today's world to this joy is consumerism that leads to self-absorption. What's the Pope's response to this? He says, I invite all Christians everywhere at this very moment to a renewed personal encounter with Jesus Christ, or at least an openness to letting him encounter them. I ask all of you to do this unfailingly each day. No one should think that this invitation is not meant for him or her, since no one is excluded from the joy brought by the Lord. Um, and then in another talk, he, he also realizes that yielding to joy is sometimes difficult. It may be overshadowed with grief or sorrow. Even as St. Francis uh, experienced times of temptation and challenges within his order, St. Pope Francis writes, I realize, of course, that joy is not expressed in the same way at all times in life, especially at moments of great difficulty. Joy adapts and changes, but it always endures, even as a flicker of light born in our personal certainty that when everything is said and done, we are infinitely loved. I understand the grief of people who have to endure great suffering, yet slowly but surely, we all have to let the joy of faith slowly revive as a quiet yet firm trust, even amidst the greatest distress. And then he quotes the book of Lamentations, chapter three. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is, but I call to mind and therefore I have, but I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of God. The Pope recalls that some of the most beautiful expressions of joy he has witnessed are by poor people who had little to hold on to, and also by others who even amidst pressing professional obligations were able to preserve in detachment and simplicity a heart full of faith. So there's a lot about joy in his missionary and sick, um, apostolic exhortation on the joy of the gospel. Um, it's interesting that toward the end he says that you not only need joy to evangelize others, but actually evangelizing is also a source of joy. Uh, he explains, this is another effect of the Holy Spirit's action, the courage to proclaim the newness of the gospel of Jesus to all, confidently with parhesia, holy boldness, in a loud voice in every time and in every place. Today, too, this happens in the church and for each one of us. The fire of Pentecost from the action of the Holy Spirit releases an ever new energy for mission, new ways in which to proclaim the message of salvation, new courage for evangelizing. Let us never close ourselves to this action. Evangelizing, proclaiming Jesus, gives us joy. Instead, egoism makes us bitter, sad, and depresses us. Evangelizing uplifts us. 
Okay, that's uh, plenty on the virtue of joy. And I, I waited a little more on Pope Francis there because he speaks so much about it. My final topic of the night is the subject actually of just the final chapter of my book. And this chapter is entitled, The Profound Untheologian. Here it is evident that I'm referring to St. Francis. St. Francis had no formal theological education beyond the catechesis that he and every other layperson in Assisi would normally have received at that time. St. Francis never went away or took time off to study theology. But here is what I consider perhaps most remarkable about Francis of Assisi. Though Francis knew no more about the Catholic faith than the average person of his day, Francis of Assisi exhibits the most profound understanding of the most essential elements of faith. And a couple of these elements were subject of tremendous confusion and distortion uh, by popular religious groups of his time. So here it is, a man with no theological training, and yet he understands so deeply three truths especially, three that are the foundation. These three beliefs that were really the core of Francis's life and teaching were the creation, the incarnation, and redemption. Let's look at each of those. First of all, creation. Now, if you know anything about St. Francis, you probably know that he gloried in everything created <clears throat> because <clears throat> it is a, all for him a work of God that reflects his goodness and his greatness. Arguably, arguably St. Francis's greatest prayer was his Canticle of the Creatures, in which Francis exalts in how God is glorified in every creature. And of course, Francis considers these his own brothers and sisters in the created order. You know, brother sun, sister moon, brother fire, brother wind, sisters water, sister mother earth, and even sister death. Now rampant in this period of history were various forms of a, a heresy called Catharism, sort of a medieval form of early Christian Gnosticism. These were people who embraced poverty and simplicity and even celibacy because they saw the whole material order as corrupt and evil. You know, for them, poverty was an escape from the material world. St. Francis, I would say, is the anti-Cathar. Yes, he was as ascetic as they were. He was as self-denying as they were. He loved poverty, but not because the material order was evil. For Francis, as we've said, the whole created order showed forth the glory and the goodness of God. Now, before his death, he was even a little apologetic that he treated his body, which he called brother ass, so ill, so harshly in his extreme penances. But, you know, those penances were not performed as some of the Cathars would do out of hatred for the body, but Francis's penances were out of love of God and a desire to imitate Jesus in his sufferings, as St. Paul had taught so clearly, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, such as in Philippians we read and 1 Corinthians, or in Colossians 1.24, we make up in our own body uh, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. So uh, creation, St. Francis is rightfully called the saint of, of creation, and he profoundly understood the beauty, the glory of God reflected in the material order, all of his creation, including the angels, of course. The second pillar of St. Francis's theology was his profound reverence for the Incarnation. 
the incarnation, that God humbled himself to assume our humanity in Jesus Christ. St. Francis's favorite feast, what do you know, what is it? <laughs> Christmas, the mystery of God who is infinitely rich, becoming poor and humble for our sake out of his infinite love, even being born in a stable among the animals. In the third year before his death, he petitioned the Pope to celebrate Christmas at Greccio with a living, true-to-life representation of the birth of Christ in honor of the Lord's incarnation. He had, was sort of the first Christmas play where everyone dressed up, you know, like the Magi and Mary and Joseph. But that, we, we take that for granted. Francis originated that, the idea of the Christmas crush. This understanding of God humbling himself in the incarnation is further expressed to God humbling himself to approach us in all the sacraments. That's sort of an extension of the incarnation especially the Eucharist and in the priesthood. Even in the presence of Christ and the words of sacred scripture, Francis had this habit of, um, of going around, if he ever found a scrap of paper uh, that had been mislaid, that had the name of God or Christ on it, he would pick it up and put it, treasure it, because it, just because it bore the name of God or Jesus. Um, he wrote to clergy, one of his big criticisms, of he, he was not very critical of clergy, but he did exhort clergy to keep the Eucharist in a, very, uh, in a place with clean linens and to show the proper respect because he, he had such a sense of the presence of Christ in the Eucharist and the honor and respect should be given to that presence. Francis, uh, so Francis in being perhaps the most incarnational saint, saint was again diametrically opposed to the Cathars who rejected all sacraments because sacraments employed material things that they saw as evil. Francis was also opposed to other groups who were simply anti-clerical, who failed to respect the clergy because of their worldliness and sins. Again, St. Francis looked at priests and the church with faith. He refused to pass judgment on them, but rather honored them, even with their faults, as God's chosen instruments. Finally, we're coming to the end here, the last great Christian mystery that St. Francis grasped, grasped so profoundly was the redemption of the human race by God through the suffering and death of his son. St. Francis wished to follow and imitate Jesus, above all in his suffering, which was the greatest action of God's humility, his self-emptying, his kenosis, and also the greatest expression of God's love for all of his people. St. Francis's fasting vigils, embracing the hardships of voluntary poverty, were all expressions of his love for Christ and his desire to imitate him. Is it any wonder that toward the very end of his life that Francis was the first person, perhaps after St. Paul, that mysterious saying of Paul about having bearing the brand marks of Christ in his body, but Francis received the wounds of Christ in his body, the sacred stigmata. That should not surprise us. Who loved the suffering Christ more intimately and deeply than Francis and tried to imitate Christ in his suffering? And, and it's interesting in the Fioretti, Francis, I told you that story about uh, perfect joy. At the end of the story, Francis explained its meaning, and he says to Brother Leo, and now hear the conclusion, Brother Leo. Above all the graces and gifts of the Holy Spirit, which Christ gives to his friends, is that of conquering oneself and, and willingly enduring suffering, insults, humiliations, and hardships for the love of Christ. For we cannot glory in all those other marvelous gifts of God, as they are not our own, they are not ours, but God's. 
as the apostle says, what have you that you have not received? But we can glory in the cross of tribulations and afflictions because that is ours. And so the apostle says, I will not glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Francis's emphasis on the suffering of Christ made a marked impact on the church and culture of his time. In 2008, I actually took a six-week uh, study tour in Italy for college professors sponsored by the National Endowment for the Humanities on St. Francis in the 13th century. And on this tour, we visited many uh, churches and art galleries with art reflecting the life or the impact of St. Francis in the 13th and 14th centuries. And, it, and we noted in this tour that before St. Francis, most of the crucifixes of the time were very stylized, without too much blood, um, and not really a portrayal of Christ in agony. Uh, the Byzantine style of the San Damiano crucifix is typical of this. Christ is erect and he's, he's not, you know, his eyes are wide open. But with St. Francis's emphasis on the suffering of Christ, crucifixes began to be produced which portrayed Jesus more evidently in pain and agony, with his body contorted instead of erect and of blood flowing copiously from his wounds, even dripping upon small figures at the base of these crucifixes, which portrayed either St. Francis or St. Dominic, or the sculptor or the patron who uh, enlisted the production of the crucifix. The idea of really portraying Christ in his suffering, and Francis had that impact to influence the culture there. Um, and it's very evident uh, the impact of Francis's focus on the suffering of Jesus on the cross and the cost of his sacrifice for our redemption is very evident here. So to close, uh, this is why I call St. Francis the profound untheologian. He knew the same facts as any other Catholic of that time or today. God created the world and saw it was good. Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. He died for our sins. How well do we grasp the full meaning and truth of these mysteries? I, for one, know that I have much to learn from St. Francis, more than I ever will be able to understand as he did, and not even close. Francis was a simple man, not a theologian, but he knew Christ and he knew deeply the meaning of the central Christian mysteries. And what of Pope Francis? As a Jesuit educated, former Cardinal Archbishop turned Pope, I don't think we can call Pope Francis an untheologian. However, I have heard people in comparing him with his immediate predecessors, Pope St. John Paul II and Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, say what amounts to the judgment that he's no theologian. I don't think our current Pope would take a personal, personal offense at that. I think the name Francis fits our present Pope very well because he understands, like St. Francis, that the kingdom of God does not belong to the worldly wise, but those who, to those who accept it as children, to those who, like St. Francis and the Blessed Virgin Mary, simply and humbly hear the word of God and act upon it. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.